Well, one of the things that I love to do is to read biographies. I, I love to read about people and see how God has shaped them or how things have played out in their own lives. And, and possibly one of the most impactful and beautiful biographies that I've ever read about a man was about a man named George Mueller. This biography titled Delighted in God by Roger Steele uh, this biography isn't that long. You could probably read it in one setting or in a couple of days. But, and it mostly traces George Mueller in his adult life and, and just in the simple ways that he was living out his life. Now, George Mueller was a Christian evangelist and a director of a couple of orphanages in England. His, his name, though, to us and to our modern hearers becomes almost synonymous or almost the epitome of someone who has true faith in God's works. In the early 1830s, he embarked on an unusual adventure where he was disturbed by what he saw as the faithlessness of the Church of England, and he longed to have something to point others to as the visible proof that God is continually at work in people's lives, generally and then also specifically. About 200 years after the Puritans came, this man recognized as one of the most God-anointed men of prayer ever seen in the world, uh, he would have for the rest of his life the opportunity to oversee orphanages where thousands and thousands of children in just a small town would come. And solely on prayer and on faith, without advertising ever a need of a debt that he had or the need of the orphanage to receive money, he was able to care for as many as 2,000 orphans at a single time, not mentioning the countless who would come in day and day again. And he was supported, or he supported personally, and his orphanages supported personally hundreds of other mission agencies around the world. Millions of dollars came through this man's hands, and in today's time it would have been seen as billions of dollars would have been handed to him directly without him, amazingly, ever asking a single person for help. But all of his needs were written down in a prayer book where he said, our kitchen is broken. We need $50 or whatever it'd be 200 years ago to repair the kitchen. And someone would just come up to him and say, hey, the Lord just put on my heart to give you $100. And he was like, great, we'll build two kitchens. Or they were in need of plates because what do kids do when they are around plates? They break them. They throw them on the ground. And when it was coming to a time where they didn't have plates for people to even eat off of, someone would say, we're moving and we can't take these with you. Can you take them off of our hands? In this biography, Delighted in God, it makes so crystal clear, in my opinion, one of the most I would say it's one of the most boring biographies to read at the same time because it was just page after page after page of George seeking the Lord with a need and someone providing. And another page of him seeking the Lord with a need and someone coming up to him and providing in many ways. When they would run out of things or when they needed to add on or when they had more kids than they had beds for, people would randomly bring by mattresses or take them into their own home. Mueller would write down all of his prayers in list form, and you can read them even today. Thousands and thousands of prayers that were specifically or generally answered by God. Some mundane, some overwhelming, all though directed to a sovereign and benevolent God who heard the heart of a Christian who was in great need. Now, our sermon's passage this morning is, 
in just a couple of verses from our scriptures, Jesus actually gives us a second aim of a person's prayer to him. We talked last week about the first aim that our prayers have. In just a couple of verses, there are are three things that we see in the first part of the Lord's, what is known as the Lord's Prayer. And now we turn to, if you haven't gotten open a Bible yet, in in verses uh, 10 through 13 of Matthew chapter 6, where God aims, or Jesus aims our heart toward God for the things that you and I practically need. Now, honestly, some of you, this is how you start out your prayer. And that was the whole instructional point of how the Lord teaches us to pray uh, through the first part of the Lord's Prayer is when we first pray, we need to set our hearts solely on Him. That's why even before the Lord's Prayer, the passage was talking about you going to a quiet place, you dedicating your own heart to exclusively seek the Lord. And then we also see that we can enjoy, seek the Lord for the things that you and I need in our own lives. And when you think about your own prayers. It may just be a list of wants, or it may be a showing of no trust, or a mindless wandering. You don't even know what you're praying for. You just kind of talk, and then you finish. Or even it's just repetitious words to kind of calm your own emotions down. But you know you should be praying spiritual-type things, and so you just say spiritual-type things, and you're not even setting your heart on the Lord. So our passage this morning is instructive for our souls to allow us to let Jesus' own words instruct our hearts to where he influences our prayers. Now, I want to approach this text in in two different ways. First, I want to show you the, the dependent breadth or the width of this text, talking about how wide it is and how encompassing that is to us. But then also, I want to talk to you as well about the directive depth of this passage. But first, I want us to see that how this passage in three broad brushstrokes actually shows the extent or the breadth that our prayers can have when we are praying to God for the things that he has placed in front of us. There are three phrases here, three different verses, 11, 12, and 13 in our own English translations. All of these are super familiar to you, I would imagine. You probably know these without even looking down at your pages. You might even be used to them, though, written in the King James Version, and then you might see it's a little bit different, but you know these by heart. All are super helpful. All are very instructive for us, and there's tremendous depth to them, but I want you to see the breadth. I want you to see the scope or the extensiveness of this. Now, a, a living biographer and pastor, a man named Ian Murray, said this, Prayer is not some mystic reasoning after the unknown, but rather it is a response to the God who speaks in Scripture, the God who personally acts and lives in the lives of his own people. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Lord's instructive prayer lifting us up to him in his holiness, lifting us up to him in his godliness, having us set our affections on on him should also involve our very complicated or big lives. It is a wide, all-encompassing prayer. I want you to see that. The, The God who we pray to is not small, nor governs in unimportant spaces. And so this prayer shows us through our own lives how he seeks his will to be done through us. Now, now, first, in the first category of a dependent breath, I want you to see in letter A there, if you're using an outline, that there is a broad totality to this prayer. A broad totality to this prayer. What makes this prayer, in part, so utterly amazing is how Jesus covers an entire Christian's life or a person's whole life. Prayer addresses our physical need, our relational need, 
and our spiritual need. That's, that's the framework or the scaffolding of what the second part of the prayer holds. Now, in the first part of the prayer, I talked to you how this isn't something that you only specifically must pray these things or you're not a Christian, you're not a good God. It's given to us like scaffolding. Or if you're ever doing like paper mache, you've got some kind of shape that you're adding on to. So when this is talking about you and your life, feel free when you're praying to the Lord to give all of yourself over to him, not just in part, but in whole. Prayer addresses all of our lives, and so it should, we should direct it towards the Lord. He has us bring to mind, think of this, our dependence on God through everything. Think of your own life, your own physical need, your own practical need, what you need to survive and grow, your, your food, your sleep, your rest, your drive, your work, your play, your sustaining nourishment, all of these things are held in the very grip of a provisional God, and we should give those things over to him. But also think about your own soul's relationships, the people, the communication, the, the social experiences, the, the work relationships, the, the family connections, the acquaintances, all these activities that your soul has is tethered to others, and Jesus wants us to not just pray for you in your own personal life, but through those tethering relationships to other people. And then broadly speaking, in totality, the spiritual life of the Christian is being granted an ear, think about this, spiritually is granted an ear of the Lord. Our spirit is what links the Christian with God, reminding us that we are something other than dust or a plant or an animal or a building. We have a connection by God's work, we have our spirit adjoining itself to the Lord in prayer. We have been made so unique in comparison to all the other created things, and we cannot escape it, add on to it, or take away from it, spiritually speaking. And God has provided for us in this way. And we're taught to bring our all in detail to God in particular. This prayer has a broad totality, but it also has a broad trajectory. So it's not just that it encompasses everything, but that there is a certain brilliance to its order. In the second part of the Lord's Prayer, the second thing that, that speaks to the breadth of Jesus' instruction is now uh, not only the totality of the prayer, but also its clear and logical trajectory. Now, some of you, when you pray, you just start saying things, and they have no order. And that's not necessarily bad, but it's just like you're just throwing something on the table like a child who grabs a box of cereal and just goes to town at the living room, right? But there is an order in how Jesus teaches us to pray, and there's a trajectory to it. Naturally, our prayers are random or disjointed, purposeless, or even aimless. And, and in many ways, this discourages us because we don't even know what's going on in our own words, and we're the ones talking. But friend, instead of relying on yourself in prayer, use what God has given us in instruction. Remain dependent on Christ in your prayer as you are aware of him and as you were aware of him in salvation. Be as dependent on that in your own prayer by following him and how he has directed us to pray. All the goodness of God that you ask of, lean on him, even in how you're going to ask him for specific things. There is a broad but brilliant trajectory in this prayer. It is so free. Uh, think of the setting here in verse 9. Just go up a couple of verses. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you might think of this 
and you have this high and lofty and right view of God through this first part of the prayer, you might naturally think that of this wonderful and exalted spiritual ascent that you have now just sent yourself on, you could do this in 10 seconds or you can do this in 30 minutes of praying of the hallowedness of God and asking for his kingdom to come and desiring his will to be carried out. And you might think the next thing that you need to pray is not what he is instructing you to pray. Somehow, briefly, you think that what would come next needs to be the man in a descending order of his spiritual needs. You go to the Lord in his glory, and then you must seek the spiritual needs of yourself. But giving a couple of words only to your body or your physical needs after all of that, but immediately after the exalted petitions of God in his glory in this text, immediately after we are lifting up the name of the Lord, we go immediately to give us what we need tomorrow to survive. He starts with the body. And that is surprising to us. We go from he and his holiness to then our very need to even survive. It's staggering. Think of it. God considers and wants you to want him to consider your very particular physical needs. Jesus begins with, you could say, your physical frame and then moves from there to the needs secondly internally, the need to internally cleanse the defilement and guilt from your own sin, to thirdly, the need to be kept from Satan in his power. He goes very high and then now very much to your body and then it extends out towards your connection with others. And what a good way to look at life. The God of the universe created humans specifically with a unique purpose in worshiping him, but also distinctly from everything else in the world, and that we have souls. I am alive, you can respond in prayer. I need my sin to be dealt with, though I am guilty and unworthy of it even being dealt with, but I also need to be delivered from evil because I am powerless. We think of this in a broad totality, but also in a broad trajectory. I say all that just to show that that this is not just Jesus saying pithy little spiritual things, but the reason why he teaches his disciples to pray like this is for our own spiritual good, so that it makes sense to us that when we seek the Lord, we then start working out from ourselves, and as almost as quickly as possible, to think less of ourselves, but then to think of our relationships with other people, and then our relationship with him keeping us from evil and temptation. So in this text, we see that there is a dependent breath, but then there is also a determined depth to this. And this is the part of the passage where we all want to dig deeper into what this text says. Possibly most surprising to you is how much depth there is, is to how you're encouraged to pray for yourself. Again, this may be my own hobby horse, but I don't think it's a mistake of how Jesus' life reflects the pattern of the Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch here. He, he is not just rumbling around the desert and just saying things, but actually he is, he is highlighting things that would have been on their minds before through the Old Testament. And even more stringently, he is playing out how, how Moses' own life would have been played out because it was Moses who, upon delivering God's people from bondage, then gave them the law more obviously to us in the Ten Commandments. But then it's Jesus who in speaking to his followers about what it means to be delivered from bondage and penalty of sin, whereby you can have a truly new, full, virtuous life and purposeful life, 
he's telling you that your heart has to be remade. That even in being delivered, it, it has your heart in mind of what's needing to be delivered. But in doing so, and here's why I said something about Moses in the Old Testament. Here's why I, I'm kind of on this hobby horse of like, you, you must read the Old Testament in order to understand who Jesus is. He's not just randomly on the scene. But what I mean is, in doing so, if you first take the first half of the Ten Commandments, they are virtuous laws directing the heart in aim toward God. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments are laws concerning your, um, your ground level or your relational life with other people. You can, you can see that so clearly, distinctly. And here we have this beautiful, perfect, awesome Lord's Prayer that is doing the exact same thing. And the intention of the law was to show us our need and to place our dependence on God. And the whole reason that we are praying is to show us our need, that we don't have anything together, and we can't even give ourselves daily bread tomorrow, but we have to fully depend on God, even in our own personal life and in relationships. And in this prayer, the Lord's instructional prayer, giving you instruction on how to direct your exclusive attention to God, is the first part about his glory and awesomeness, and second part about your own personal petitions. And I just think that's really cool and really helpful. The depth here is so clear and helpful. This prayer has a determined depth, meaning when you pray, you can be confident in your prayers. You can be resolute in your petitions. You don't have to come to the Lord nervous or thinking that you have to say certain particular words in order for God to actually hear you. But if you're in Christ, you can know that you fully have his ear. So briefly, let's just look at some of these, or a couple of these, or these, not some, all of these verses here, 11 through 13. These items may be very obvious to you, but I want you to see the heart of the matter of these three famous lines. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Our desire in prayer concerning ourselves should be a heart of complete dependence on God for the things of our lives. To pray for daily bread is a humble thing. It would be like you and I praying for water or cereal. It seems like it's so obviously there. But what happens if you don't have daily bread? You die. And even though it seems to be so familiar to us and so around us, the, the humility that we bring to the throne of God and praying for these simple things shows that every single ounce of our lives are dependent on Him completely. It's available everywhere. It's assumed to everyone. And that's the point. We are reminded, even in our need of this, first, that we'll die without basic things in life, but also, second, that the sovereign God of the universe is a providing God for your very life. He didn't set up all of creation for everything to die. Some have translated this daily bread as meaning bread for tomorrow. Give us bread for tomorrow, you might ask. And you might be praying that tonight. Give us our supply of what we need to have tomorrow. And the meaning is the exact same, whether it's daily bread or bread for tomorrow. We're to ask for what we need. And I agree with those who say that this is not just true and physical in its form, but also a metaphor. It's not just strictly speaking of a loaf for bread, but you, Christian, are to freely seek the Lord for the daily, some things that you might even see mundane or large things pertaining to your very livelihood. I imagine many of you skip over the small and aim for the big, or you aim just for the big and you skip over the small. When I lived for a couple of years in Virginia, in Charlottesville, Virginia, I had the pleasure of my truck's transmission going out. And um, I, didn't, I didn't really, well, I told everyone, right, because I'm a complainer and whiny, but told everyone. But I didn't do anything about it for two weeks. 
I just let it sit there. You know, Charlottesville is like a cool little hip town. So there are bike paths everywhere. I only lived a, mi- a half mile from the office. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to be fit. And, you know, it's June, so I can ride my bike everywhere. And I just kind of had this idea, if I let my truck sit, it'll fix itself, right? And now, clearly, I don't know anything about vehicles. But for those of you who also don't know, trucks don't fit, fix themselves. And so then you go to the transmission place. Or, well, they come and get your truck because they're like, can you bring it in? It's like, no, I can't. They come and get it, they fix it, and then they give you a major bill. And you're like, I don't have that. And, you know, it, it works itself out. I'm pretty sure I called my dad. But you can, I can guarantee you that every single time for as long as I can remember and still today, when I get in my car and turn it on and it goes forward, I pray for the mundane things of, Lord, thank you for this. Those little things, right? Or all of a sudden, it might be daily bread for you. Or maybe in the ice storm a couple of months ago when some of you didn't have hot water, you will, you will now thank the Lord for hot water, won't you? Especially those of you with nasty little kids, right? <laughs> God is calling us to be reminded of how dependent we are on him for everything. Friend, you, you must be, and you are, whether you acknowledge it or not, everyone is dependent on the Lord for oxygen and water, and a roof over our heads, or even friends around us. But think of the context of the bread here. I think it's pretty obvious here that Jesus is not just intending to say, pray for the normal things, though he certainly is. But I think he's given a clear allusion to what is written about in Exodus 16 on the daily manna. So if you have a Bible, turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 16. Book of Exodus chapter 16. If you're not familiar with the Bible, go all the way to the left and then go maybe 80 pages to the right. Exodus chapter 16. A big number 16 will be on your page there. And go to verses 2 through 4. I think, just this, I think Jesus would have in mind this. And I, I think most importantly, the listeners of Jesus would have this in mind when he's talking about daily bread. It says there in verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then it speaks of how God would provide for his people. The Israelites were led by God to depend on God and even to prepare for God's promised provision. They were in the wilderness and were in daily need of his grace and mercy. And friend, I think we can look at that and see a lot of ourselves there where we are, we are not where we will finally be in the presence of God. We are on this very day in the wilderness. We are sojourners in a foreign land. And some of you, I would imagine, you wake up every day and endure every day longing to not be in the circumstance that you are in. And so were they. And it was the Lord who said, I know you think you had it better, and I know you want to go back into slavery. My edit, you silly moron. But I will still provide for you of what you need. And they should still seek him, and so should we. Uh, I know that it's common for little kids to want to run away from home. Now, little children, wake up. Do not run away from home. It is, it is bad and not good to run away from home. And here's why. You won't make it on your own. You will run out of food. You cannot drive. You don't have money. You won't make it. And more importantly, your parents want to provide for you. Your parents want to 
give you food and give you shelter and care for you. They, they love you. Now, adults, don't run from the Lord. He loves you. He wants to care for you. He wants to provide for you. So when we're instructed, give us this day our daily bread, it's not just a throwaway line to don't forget to pray before dinner. But remember, even the the air that we breathe or the food that we make, it's the Father's love that gives us these things. This prayer ought to be the heart of the believer. We should be quick to uh, have this on our lips, to call to God to provide for the things that we need to survive. And, and this is because it is reminiscent of the whole tone of the Beatitudes, resonating with the virtues of meekness, of humility, even of hungering and thirsty. And so we go to the Lord and ask Him to provide the basic things because without Him, we have no basic things. Christian, if you are confident in your own ability to live on your own, to provide for yourself and for others. If you are easily self-satisfied, be warned that Jesus calls you to pray as a humble, lowly, broken, desperate, meek person, even for daily bread. The context has you to think of Jesus' technical use of bread, but also the setting shouldn't be far off. So we look at the context, but we also look at the setting here either. I've already mentioned, but the daily bread should have us recalling to the wilderness setting of the Israelites on our own or their own, their own wilderness setting and receiving this instruction from Jesus. But, but even closer to home in the book of Matthew chapter 6, we know that Matthew chapter 6 comes just after Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 4, where Matthew very intentionally is weaving together a connection between regular need and regular bread. And it was Satan's own temptation, tempting of Jesus in chapter 4, where Satan wanted Jesus to break down physically from his own fast and turn stones into bread, saying, you can't provide for yourself. If you do that, then you can. Matthew would go on to show, though, later on, two unforgettable miracles where he'd feed thousands and thousands of people with bread. And even those meals were symbolic of God's own coming, restoration that would come later on. But, but both of these things, the, the bread in Jesus' temptation and then the bread and mass and the miracle feedings, those anticipate a greater gospel story. This, this story is so cool. This prayer is so incredible because the Lord's Supper that would come just before the night of Jesus' own death where Jesus would then take bread, break it, pass it around a table, and then say, eat this as a sign of what is going to happen to me, where I'm going to die, but also you can have all of me because of this death. He would pay for the very sins that we seek the Lord to forgive us from, and he would then inaugurate the new covenant, a covenant that was not through sacrifice, but by him being the, the fulfilled and fulfilling and the complete loaf. We daily seek. And here's the point. This is why I'm calling this a technical depth. Jesus has and will show in this gospel that he is the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of the call from the wilderness. He is the only thing that can satisfy the hunger of a believer. And he offers himself to you in whole and says, take and eat and be hungry no more. And when you pray, in daily form or in desperation, say, O bread of life, give us this day our daily bread. You can see the brilliance of his teaching them to depend on God because he's teaching on them to depend on God through him and to see his very gospel. So this is why it has such incredible 
technical depth. But then to continue on, we see this tethered depth in our own uh, narrative here. And in verse 12, to continue into verse 12, there's not only a technical depth to this text, but Jesus teaches to pray for the relationships that you've got. You are tethered to people. You have connections with people. Even those of you who think you don't have any friends, you actually have friends that also don't think they have any friends, right? Some of you are related to like three-fourths of this room, and you don't even know it, right? In all of the friendship advice that you can imagine, you may or may not be quick to say, I need to be a forgiving person. This is the very heart of our connection with other people. And that's what Jesus teaches here. We need to be forgiving people. Why? Because well, people are incredibly sinful people. People have to be forgiven. Because otherwise, what's left? And you know why we can be so confident that you can look at a buddy and say, hey, you've really messed up, but I want to forgive you? Is because that person can look right back at you and say, oh, guess what? You've sinned against me too. And that's what we've got in common with others, really. We see at the root of this prayer What we have in common with other people is not a race, not a job, not children's hobbies, not schools, not a language or money, but the things that you and I have in common is our own sinful nature and sinful hearts. The whole realm of the Sermon on the Mount is calling the person who wants to follow God as looking at their own heart and seeing, I am in need of not anything other than a replacement. I need a new heart. Because my heart on its own separates me from God. And our heart on, our, on its own actually separates me from you. That's what makes relationships so difficult. It's so, we're so good at hurting people, right? And he says that we need to be forgiving people because we need to seek him for forgiveness. The centrality of this verse shouldn't pass you by. It's, it's in the middle of these longings of our hearts or our petitions to the Lord. In verse 12, in the Lord's Prayer, the personal part cannot be ignored. I'll preach more on this passage uh, next week, or I'll preach more on this verse as well as verses 14 and 15 next week, Lord willing, because it's such a huge theme in the book of Matthew, the idea of, of eschatological and personal forgiveness. But the language is so drastic and uninspected. You might imagine the followers of Jesus listening to him saying, okay, we should pray that way, okay, okay, pray that way, okay, pray that way, okay, that makes sense, pray for daily bread, of course, we all need daily bread, Uh, be forgiving of others. Oh, that seems, I don't want to do that. Why would we forgive terrible people? Why would we forgive sinful people? You know, how many of you have parents say, you can hurt me, but if you hurt my child, you will find a mama bear in your midst, right? And that's the reverse of what Jesus is teaching here. The unexpected and rather disturbing note in this uh, seemingly non-understandable petition is for God to forgive us of our sins. Uh, this, This disturbing note, the idea of God, us seeking God to forgive us of our sins, is actually the legal rider that is attached here and then unpacked in verses 14 and 15. A follower must Forgive others who have wronged him. And that's it. If you're forgiven, then you have to forgive. Because if you can't forgive, then you have no concept of what it means to be forgiven. If you look at other people and say, I can't forgive that person, how are you ever going to understand how Jesus on the cross forgives you of your sins? Because you're the worst one in this relationship. They don't even know the depth of your lack of richness. 
but what you must see in a, in a tethered sense in your relationships with others as a follower of Jesus, never does Jesus allow his people to slip back into comfortable and external, externally focused lives. He wants them to experience and know a deeper and greater righteousness. So when you see these words and you aim to apply them to your own prayers, forgive us of our debts and as we also forgive our debtors. It should be a recognizable thing that in asking for the everyday things of your lives that you are seeking the Lord to help out your relationships because God has never called anyone to just live an individual life but to live a life amongst others. You know, you you hear a lot that in the church, right, in the church it's actually harder to have a relationship with people in the church than people outside of the church, right? And, And I get that. I don't agree with it because I'm like, well, you don't have many friends outside the church if you think that's the case. But the reason why it's difficult, the reason why it doesn't seem to be grease on the wheels inside the church is because we ought to be as honest as we can that, hey, I actually hurt you when I said that. And you hurt me when I said this. And we know who we can go to to seek forgiveness. Versus outside of the church, we just get a different job. Or we live in a different area. Or we move towns. Or we change friends. Or we unfriend them on Facebook, right? And I don't have to see them anymore. But in the church, we're a family. I mean, how many of you go back on a Thanksgiving dinner and you just prepare yourself? Because here it comes, but we're family and I can't ignore you. And oh, grandma assigned our seatings at the table and I don't like you that much. You, You can't get over it. You can't go outside and play football anymore because you blew out your knee. You're old. You, you have to encounter those relationships. You are. You have to encounter them. And in the church, we see this as so important. The idea of us seeking the Lord for forgiveness, but then also seeking to forgive others because God has forgiven them. They are also a soul who's praying for daily bread. And so it should be part of our lives to pray for others who are around. And to seek not only his forgiveness and our own sins, but also, Lord, help me forgive that person. We see also, uh, lastly, a transcendent depth. So not only a tethered or a transactional depth, but also a transcendent depth to this prayer. Our personal prayer is technically and tethered, but also transcendent. And this is a dark, though ironically joyful part of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches his followers to pray that they not be led into temptation, but instead to be delivered from it. Now, a better way to translate this, you might have like yours, uh, you might have in your passage like I have in mine, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The the best way that this should be translated uh, would be best way that this would be translated is to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from Satan's grip or Satan's desire on our own lives. Now, why would Jesus have us do this? Why do followers of Jesus need to ask God not to lead them into temptation? Would he be leading us there anyway? Is there an assumed risk of us following Jesus? If I follow Jesus, then he's going to lead us into temptation. That doesn't seem like a good bit, does it? The key to understanding this, helpfully, is to recognize that there is a difference in you being tested, or there is a difference in you going through a trial, versus you being tempted, or you being led into temptation, or being lured into temptation. God does test 
his people. God may be testing you right now or in the circumstances of your life. God does test his people in order to refine them and discipline them toward godliness. And any test we go through is actually for our good. Now, many of you might look at God's testing wrongly by seeing him testing you like I wonderfully will always have in my mind a macroeconomics teacher testing me in college my freshman year where he said, good luck to everyone who takes this final. It is impossible for you to make an A. And that's how we often see God testing us, like he's wanting us to fail. This guy wanted me, wanted all of us in our class to not make an A. And he was right. But we got close, right? Where, where you think that God's test is like luring into a trap. And, and you're like the kid who's like going, you know, where there's some booby trap or test like in Indiana Jones where if you just kind of shuttle around it, then God's like, oh man, almost got you there, but that was really good. That's not how God tests his people. That is how Satan lures you into temptation. God does not tempt people. He does not uh, lure you into temptation. He doesn't seek your downfall through temptation. He seeks your refinement through discipline and mercy from his testing you. Think of it another way. How we wrongly think of God testing us is how quick we are to test God right back. Think of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16. So just one chapter after the Lord spoke to them about how he would provide for them on a daily basis and would even give them an abundance so that during their Sabbath, where they weren't supposed to go out and gather manna, they had enough in their storehouses to where they could still eat so they could still pray with confidence, give us this day our daily bread. And what did they do? One chapter later, they said, quote, let's put Yahweh to the test. It's a bad idea, and it didn't work out for them, and it will not work out for you. We shouldn't test God. We should allow him to bless us. We should trust God. And we should ask God to keep us from demonic or satanic situations. Now, why transcendent death? Uh, Why did I say transcendent death on your outline? Well, clearly I needed a T word. But why did I say transcendent? I get that it goes out like outer rings. You know, you you get the trajectory or the effect of this. But why transcendent? Friend, I think... I think most of you get to this part of your prayer and find the other two daunting, you know, daily bread, relationships with other people. You find those daunting things, but, but you find yourself able to really ask for that. Or you find yourself really able to, to be in God's will through that. Like, I recognize that this person is different, but we're related, so I'm going to pursue the Lord in that relationship. Or I recognize how hard it is to provide for my family, but I'm going to do that because I know that's God's will for me as, as a husband or as a father of a house. I, I know that I can do those things, and you can pray for your kid who will soon go to college, or you can pray for your relationship with your mom to be repaired with repentance and forgiveness. You can pray for bills to be met, even though you really don't know how. But those temptations, you say, oh, oh, you don't know the skeletons in my closet. You don't know what I'm up against. You don't know my ex. You don't know my past. You don't know how I can't not be around a screen. You don't know how I can't just avoid these images to where I then act on. I can't, I can't get away from it. You don't know the temptation that I'm running up against. And friend, you're exactly right. I don't. Uh, But friend, in the darkest of time, in calling to the Lord to keep you from temptation, you are praying to the one 
who does know the limits and the extents of those temptations. You are praying to the Father who, are, who way back was rebelled against by his own chief angel. The one who you would imagine he would take pride in now rebels against him and for the rest of Satan's life just wants the glory of the Lord to be torn down. Friend, you are, you are praying to that father who understands evil. He's being thwarted with anger and literal demons and a devil in every sense. They hate him and they are powerful. You are praying to that father though. So be honest with him and seeking him in your temptation. But you are also praying in the name of the son who came and endured more trial and tribulation than you and I could ever imagine. He's the one who never had to pray this prayer because he always hallowed the Father's name. He is the inauguration of the kingdom, and he has no need to be forgiven of anything. He didn't need to say that phrase, forgive me of my sin. He's like, I didn't sin. I don't need to pray that. And yet he was still killed. And those sinless people rebelled against him and took his own life. You're praying to him, you're praying to God in his name. So when you fear that you cannot either be honest with God about temptation or you don't even want to admit to someone of what you're going through because they wouldn't understand or wouldn't empathize or they don't really get what you're going through in evil, demonic temptation, recognize that you are praying to the Father in the name of the Son. But lastly, friend, do not forget, and we have so often, do not forget that as you pray to the Father in the name of the Son, you are praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. The honesty of seeking God for mundane things in life, it's in power that you pray. It's in His power that you pray. The need to be forgiven and the need to forgive others, it's in His power that you pray these things. And the power that you need to overcome evil, friend, That is his business. That is what he knows how to do. That is all that he does is overcome evil for the good name of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is your soul's seal, keeping you in the faith and sanctifying you toward holiness. It's the Spirit that provides gifts and assurance of your hope towards godliness. He he is the one who increases your faith to more deeply trust and love God in the midst of every trial, tribulation, and what you find to be a test. You are coming to God in His power. And at the moment of salvation, it was the Holy Spirit who caused and directed you specifically to the saving understanding of Jesus Christ and caused you to embrace with effective knowledge and faith in God. And He's not finished in your own life. In your own temptation, it's the Holy Spirit's witness who enables you to deeply understand and believe the gospel more deeply and that he brings understanding and assurance of salvation to you. He reminds you with great assurance of the finality of Christ's saving work and gives you confidence in you standing as sons and daughters of God. Friend, do not forget who you are praying to, the name and who you pray and by the very power that you pray to this God to provide daily bread, to help you in relating for the glory of his name with other people, and by delivering you from the evil one. I was on the phone with someone yesterday for over an hour who was just demonstrating and talking about all of the wretchedness and, I think, 
satanic attack on her life and her family's life, coming at her from all different angles. And according to her words, it seems like it is increasing, and she is incredibly fearful. She is incredibly fearful for her namesake. She is incredibly fearful for her business's sake. She is incredibly fearful for what her kids might hear of other people's lies around him. And I was so encouraged with her final words. She said, but I'm praying to the one who not only knows it, but endured it for me. Friend, recognize when we are praying to the Lord, it is for him to build us up in Christ-likeness. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your instructive word. We pray that we would respond from your word to you with more eager prayers, with more honest prayers, with more mundane and boring prayers, and awesome and highly exalted prayers. Lord, we ask that you would place in our minds things of how we can confess to you and seek your forgiveness and how we can love other people who you've placed us around, and how we can avoid or run from temptation, knowing that it's you who we can run to. Oh Lord, make yourself more prevalent in our lives. Uphold yourself more clearly in our lives to where we are not confused or distracted by anything around us. Oh Lord, our Lord, we pray that you would hold us, and we thank you that you do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.